0: I bring you greetings from the village church in Denton. We love you, we think about you often, and uh, I know there 's a couple of minutes here to just sort of say hello, but um, even this week there 's no real way to express how regularly we really do think about you This week. We had our church wide prayer service that we have once a month, and we spent probably ten or fifteen minutes just laboring in prayer for you and your congregation and so in so many different ways, you really are family and uh, Pastor T and, and Christy and and, and uh, they've they've been able to come up and visit us and certainly serve us through the word numerous times and just the impact that they and you through them have had on our congregation is really hard to overstate. And so we love you. And uh, as, as Pastor T said, from the first day until today, it's just been a joy to be in partnership in the gospel with you. In fact, I remember last time I was here was actually a few years ago, and uh, we were walking the neighborhood. Some of you, I think, were there. I was trying to find some of you that were there uh, two, three years ago, and we were just walking the neighborhood, evangelizing the neighbors. I went to the Bible study that week, and then we went and met over at Orr Elementary School just down the street. That's where you were last this time I was here. And so uh, to have heard the last couple of years how God has grown you in grace together and in love together and in faith together, I've gotten to hear it. And just to be among you again to see it uh, is no small encouragement. And so uh, I've prayed that I would be able today to um, bring you something of value, as the Apostle Paul wrote, some gift, um, something that would bless and strengthen you and encourage you as a congregation, especially As you're in this sermon series called Learning to Do Justice, that you've been thinking through the issue of justice together, how to do justice, how to walk uh, uprightly. And uh, if you're new to the congregation, uh, our church, I'll just say our church. You okay with that? Uh, Our family is uh, right in the middle of a sermon series that we've called uh, 117, Learning to Do Justice, or Learn to Do Justice, where we have been, uh, as a church, considering our calling as those who've been rescued from our sin, those who have been made right with God through His Son, Jesus, are calling in light of that to give ourselves in love to our neighbors and more particularly to the expressions and practices of love that the Bible calls justice. And uh, in fact, I like what one theologian said about justice. He said, quote, Justice is what love looks like when it's facing the problems its neighbors are dealing with. End quote. And of course, especially our most vulnerable and oppressed neighbors. And so, if you're new with us this morning, you know the clear teaching, the belief of this church is that the clear teaching of the Bible is that a grand symptom or a fruit of being saved by grace, of being justified by God and made right with God because of the justice of God in the sin of man that Jesus absorbed upon Himself on the cross, a grand fruit of that, a grand symptom of that is a sensitive social conscience and a life given in good works of love and justice to those around us. And not least, that's a grand symptom and fruit of the Christian life because as Christians, those that have become citizens of God's kingdom, we've come to understand as the psalmist declared that righteousness and justice are the foundation of our God's throne. You think about that. Our God is the King and the foundations of His throne, the psalmist cries out, he sings, "Our justice and righteousness. And this truth about our God is both the foundation of our definition of justice and also our source of hope to do it. And, uh, and just as a sort of, I've been listening to the sermon series, and uh, as just as a side note, perhaps my most favorite part of how Pastor T's sort of led you through this series is how he has anchored uh, the conception and pursuit of justice in God's character. That, that, that any pursuit, any vision, any definition of justice has to start with God. But not just, not just in God's character. He's also rooted your conception and pursuit of justice in hope. The hope that comes from knowing that our God is seated on this throne of righteousness and justice and that He says to His people, His people who are longing for His reign of justice and righteousness to come and flood the earth, to come to earth as it is in heaven, that He says, behold, I'm making all things new. This is the hope, you get to the end of the Bible, this is the hope for God's people who are crying out for justice, is our Lord on the throne saying, behold, I'm making all things new. In learning to do justice, either personally or collectively as a local church, it requires an anchor of hope. Now I know that hope is not the first thing that comes to most people's mind when they think of justice. Typically when we think of justice, even in the church, we may think of prophets, right? We think of those who cry out day and night against injustice. And that's true. Prophets do cry out against evil and injustice, and then they go to work organizing people to oppose oppression and to pursue justice. But you know what often goes unnoticed about the prophets, at least the prophets in the Bible, is that they understand evil and they're empowered and inspired to do justice because they understand what is good. In other words, their vision that they're, they're crying out against injustice from is a vision of what is good. Prophets know how to see how the world's gone wrong because they understand and envision the world as it's supposed to be as God made it to be. And so prophets are those actually, as they cry out against injustice, more fundamentally prophets are those who keep dreaming and keep imagining and keep longing, keep hoping for a day when God will put things right. And they have a crystal clear vision of how things will be when they are put right. When God's justice will make the crooked straight again. Now, I say all that, Having hope doesn't mean that we lack grit. And again, Pastor T's done a wonderful job in just sort of explaining that, that faith without works is dead, and the same goes with hope. Without costly action, hope often just softens into sentimentality. True hope is not just mere sentimentality. And yet when hope is paired with costly love and good works, hope hardens into reality into justice. And yet without the sustaining, humbling hope of the gospel, of this good news that God through His Son and by His Spirit is making all things new, all efforts and all rhetoric toward justice will eventually lead to fatigue. If it's not anchored in hope and a vision of God, it will eventually lead to fatigue or bitterness or self-righteousness or haughtiness or even ironically, hating the haters and oppressing the oppressors. And so, in other words, to do biblical justice requires an anchor of biblical hope. And true biblical justice never turns the oppressed into oppressors. But it requires hope. It requires a vision of how things should be. And one day, we believe as God's people, we wait expectantly how things will be. And again and again and again and again during this sermon series, Pastor T has anchored your hearts and those listening in in hope. And uh, and I thank God for that. And yet, what does it look like for a local church to live out of this hope together and to live into this call to do justice? That's what I'm here to talk about and think about with you this morning. And, uh, and in fact, this fall, our church did a um, similar sermon series on justice. I'm actually bitter that... Pastor T. didn't do his first, so I could just have listened to his, and then preached his sermon and ours, and so I had to, I had to do some work on my own, and, uh, and it was much less helpful than the work he's been doing among you, and, uh, and yet we did one on justice, and, uh, and as I talked with, with Thabiti about being here this morning, what we thought might be most helpful for me to share with you is how our church, like yours, and in many ways influenced by your church has sought to practically live out this call to do justice after we've walked through this sermon series. And so, in other words, this is going to kind of be a case study. It's a sermon, but it'll be a case study of sorts as well where I just want to share with you what we're trying to do, just like you. We're in a different trench, in a different neighborhood, and yet the same call to do justice in the same... Uh, anchor of hope is what we're trying to live out together. And so I thought it might be helpful uh, as we look at a passage of Scripture just for me to give you uh, a glimpse of what we're trying to do and however that might serve you as your congregation is having these same conversations together. And, uh, and so if you have your Bible, why don't you turn to Luke chapter 10 with me. We're going to look at Luke chapter 10 verses 25 through 37, which is perhaps the most famous parable that Jesus ever told a parable about loving our neighbors it's called the parable of the good samaritan so luke chapter 10 verses 25 to 37 and uh you know in luke's story at the point that this parable happens uh, Jesus has just set His face to go to Jerusalem. He's turned away from His ministry in the Galilee, which is Luke chapters 4 through 9. And He sets His face to go to Jerusalem where He knows He's going to suffer. He's going to be rejected. He's going to ultimately be crucified, then raised from the dead. And He's training His disciples along the way. They've got a lot of room to go, a lot of room to grow as they're headed toward Jerusalem. And so He begins to train them. He's just sent out 70 or 72 of them. They've come back. And then as they come back, and He is de- debriefing with them about what they've seen and what they've experienced together, this moment happens in front of the disciples and apparently a large crowd of others. It says in verse 25, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to the lawyer, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, The parable. A man. Was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, and stripped him, and beat him, and departed. The old robbers did. And leave, leaving him, they, they left him half dead. And Jesus says, Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite. And when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. And Jesus said to the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. So what I want to talk about, just think about, just briefly together this morning is, in light of what we're thinking about regarding what it looks like for a local church to do justice, just three things from the parable. Number one, the familiarity of the parable. I want to think about that briefly. Number two, the heart of the parable. And then number three, living out the parable. So the the familiarity of the parable, the heart of the parable, and living out the parable. Just really briefly here, the familiarity of the parable. And as I mentioned, you know, this parable is perhaps the most famous parable in all of Jesus' teaching that we have. And even if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, we're delighted that you're with us, but you have most likely heard this parable even though you're not a Christian. Or at least you've heard the phrase, Good Samaritan. Because this parable has had such a powerful impact on our culture that even now, 2,000 years later, it remains lodged, this parable does, the language of it, in the moral imaginations, in everyday language of our culture. Such that we're all somewhat familiar with this parable, even if we've never actually read it. And I find that's the case with many Christians. They've heard about this parable but never actually read it like we've just done. And, and it's so you know, famous. In fact, many of you might remember, just as you know, we remembered and memorialized Dr. King's assassination 50 years ago last month, in his very last sermon in Memphis, the night before he was assassinated, this is the text that he preached in his sermon, I've Been to the Mountaintop, is this parable. And and what I want to say about the familiarity with the parable is that I think the familiarity is a good sign at least in the church because what it means, our familiarity in the church with this parable is that amid all the disagreements that have taken place within church throughout its history and that are still taking place today as you've been thinking about not least in evangelicalism around the conversation of justice, for all the disagreement, all the tension, all the friction, all the differences of conscience and differences of interpretation, there's unity about the importance of this parable. There's a sense of solidarity around the fact that what Jesus teaches here in this parable about loving neighbor, the love that Dr. King called in his sermon this dangerous unselfishness, that this is central to the life and mission of the church. There's unity about that. There's unity that that this is central to what we're called to be and do as God's people. So in other words, for all that we Christians may disagree on, we agree on this. And how could we not? For throughout the ages, if you think about it, you know this command, this double command here, it's been echoed as the summary of the law. You think about whether it's James or you think about the Apostle Paul, this is the royal commandment. The law of Jesus Christ. The summary of all the law and all the prophets. What Augustine called, the African theologian, he called the double love of God. That this double love of God and neighbor is the fundamental posture and ethic of what we're called as God's people to be and to do in this world as we wait in hope for God to make things new. For God's justice to come and make the crooked straight. Or even think about, you know, we read from John chapter 15 earlier, but in that same meal, John chapter 13, where Jesus told His disciples, listen, the world's going to know you're My disciples by what? by your love for one another, by the way that you love one another in the way that I've just modeled it for you in washing your feet and I'm going to go and do by dying on the cross for you. And so, in other words, again, the familiarity with this parable, it's a good thing. It means we have unity even where we might see things a little bit different. We all agree on this parable and its centrality in the Christian life, but our familiarity with it can also breed contempt. I think both in terms of living out the parable, but also in our actual reading and understanding of the parable. Because this is one of those stories of the Bible that we can come to with the mindset, yeah, 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 I got it. Right? Even if you don't say that, it's kind of like, You know, you'll be reading in a book and they'll quote this and then you'll skip over it to go back to what the author was saying. It's like, I know that text. I know that parable. And we can come and say, yeah, I got it. And, And certainly there are things to be got from this parable, I think. And yet, I also think it's possible for us to grasp some of these lessons and principles from the parable on a surface level without actually feeling the force of the heart of the parable. And the lessons that flow from its heart. So let's talk about that now. The heart of the parable. And what what lies at the heart of the parable. And in fact the lawyer's questions to Jesus. Is as one scholar put it. Nothing less than two quite very different versions. Of what it means to be God's people. That's how significant. What's going on in this parable is. And of course this is still what lies at the heart of. The friction in the church around conversations around many things these days, but particularly justice, is a different vision of what it means to be God's people, perhaps. And so you look there in verse 25, Luke tells us that the lawyer, now he's a lawyer of the Jewish law, which is not the same as the lawyers down on K Street. Is that the right street where those lawyers are? Down on K Street? Okay, just making sure. I'm acting like I'm from D.C., right? Uh, this is, a, this is a, a lawyer, a lawyer of the law of God, the Word of God. It's a scholar of the Bible, a lawyer of the Bible. And he begins this conversation, Luke tells us in verse 25 with Jesus, to test Jesus. You see that? To uncover Jesus' heretical views and teaching about God's plan for the world. That's what to test Him means. Especially Jesus' views, it seems, for those in the world who were not God's chosen people. Not Israelites. And Luke then tells us in verse 29 that the lawyer's follow-up question to Jesus, who is my neighbor, is motivated by his desire to justify himself after his initial question to trap and test Jesus failed. So you got to get the tension of this. In other words, it says that that when the lawyer asks, who is my neighbor, he's not simply asking the question to prove that his first question wasn't dumb or obvious. Because in essence, how does Jesus respond to his first question? You know the answer. What do you think? And he gives the answer. He says, you already knew that. Yes. And so the lawyer's going, wait, 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 wait. That didn't work. No, I want to justify. I want to win the argument what I'm trying to get at through the first question, that didn't work. And so he asks another question and he says, who is my neighbor? And he asks it so that he could win the debate that he's now entered into with Jesus in front of all these people. He's in a dialogue now publicly. He's entered into a debate. He's challenged Jesus on a matter of the law in front of all these people. And so he says, who is my neighbor? And he wants to see what Jesus will say. And he wants to smoke Jesus out and show in front of all these people that Jesus' view of who a neighbor is is wrong. It's actually heretical. And what his question reveals, therefore, is that what's at the heart of these differing visions of what it means to be God's people is a differing view of who God says our neighbor is. Or in other words, how far we think our love should go. Who we think our love should extend to. And you see, this priority, this call for God's people to love your neighbor as yourself, that both the lawyer and Jesus affirm. They agree on that. Jesus affirms when He gives that answer. This comes from Leviticus 19. This is the passage of Scripture you might remember a few weeks ago. Pastor T referenced in one of his sermons. And in Leviticus chapter 19, the love of neighbor that God's holiness requires of His people is speaking fundamentally about love for fellow Israelites those who were ethnically like them. And yet, it's also, in Leviticus 19, very clearly a command to love that is to be extended beyond fellow Israelites to the resident aliens or foreigners or what we might call refugees who embrace God's covenant with His chosen people. And so in other words, the status of loving neighbor, the status of neighbor even, who is my neighbor? The status of neighbor extends to these non-Jews in Leviticus 19. If you want to go look at that later, you can in verses 33 and 34. But in the day of Jesus, a day where foreign powers like the Roman Empire had made a habit of conquering and oppressing God's people, Many of God's people no longer viewed the foreigners among them as their neighbors. They viewed them as their enemies. And of course, they felt justified in doing so. Which I think if we're honest and humble, we, we can understand, can't we not? We can sympathize with them feeling that way about their oppressors. So they viewed people as their enemies, these foreigners. But you know, much like in our own culture today, in Jesus' day, social life had become extremely tribal. You know what I mean by that? You know, the, the, the culture, in other words, was one in, where, in which people were socially divided or segregated by different tribes or groups, which were based on some sort of identity marker, whether it was one's religion or one's nationality or one's ethnicity or one's ancestry or one's political or theological convictions or a mixture of these various tribes. And so the question in that culture of who is my neighbor? In a tribal culture, the question, who is my neighbor, is a loaded, explosive question. you got to feel that if you're going to understand the power of this parable. When he says, when the lawyer says, who is my neighbor, he knows what he's asking. He knows how explosive and loaded this question is. It's a question that tests one's loyalty that test one's purity to one's tribe. And one's answer to that question could determine one's popularity and status as a teacher among that tribe. Which again, that's why the lawyer asks the question. Both to justify himself and his own view of who a neighbor is, but also to undermine Jesus. And to do it in front of the crowd. To do it in front of the disciples. he's Again, he's asking the question to smoke Jesus' view out so that Jesus' popularity, His growing authority with the people will be undermined. And the drama of all of this makes Jesus' answer to the lawyer's question, this now familiar parable that he tells, all the more forceful. When you get the drama of what that question is loaded with, who's my neighbor, you can feel the force and the heart of what Jesus says in response. Look at verse 30. Jesus replied to the question. In other words, it literally says He took the question up. I like that. Oh, you want to challenge me? Okay, I'll take this question up. You want to have this conversation? I was going to let you off by just you know, saying go and do likewise, but you want, to, you want to come back? Okay. So He took the question up. He replied A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. You think, well, what's so powerful about that? It's powerful that Jesus doesn't give any details about this man's tribe. The man on the side of the road, that is. He's not a friend, he's not a foe, he's not a Jew. He's not a Gentile. He's not in this tribe or in that tribe. He's just a human being. He's just a vulnerable neighbor in need. And introducing the man in the parable this way, what does Jesus do? He immediately undermines the trap that the lawyer laid in asking him, Who is my neighbor? And what he does is he smokes the man out, and he completely reframes the man 's real question: "How far does love reach based on Leviticus nineteen jesus says one 's neighbor and one 's love for neighbors not based on their tribe it 's based on their need. Amen. So wise this is how Jesus replies, and then he says in verse thirty two or thirty one rather now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when the priest saw the man on the side, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, it's important to understand that within the the us-them tribal culture of the day, these two guys' connection to the temple gives them an extremely honorable and righteous status in Israel. So in other words, they had social honor and all of the advantages... And all of the privileges that came with that social honor, a social honor that was not based on what they had achieved by the character of their life, but what was ascribed or had been given to them based on their priestly ancestry or their Levitical ancestry. In other words, these two guys embody the us. If there's an us, they are the poster childs for us. They're Jewish, and not just Jewish, but they're a certain tier of Jew in this day. They're conservative Jews. They're pure Jews. They're honorable Jews. They're temple Jews. And because of their honored status among their tribe, them passing by this man, this neighbor on the road, it would have probably been justified in their minds without them having to give any reason. A lot of people speculate what the reason is. Well, because they're priestly, they're on the way to the temple. No, they're coming back down from the temple. We don't know why they didn't stop. Jesus doesn't care. He just, they didn't stop and you have to assume maybe because they had some good reason at least in their minds. And that's why Jesus doesn't even hesitate to sort of stop to sort of slow down and tell them why they stopped. Because there has to be some good reason. Why? Because they're the ones that are honored. They're the ones that know what they're doing. They know what they're doing, right? They must have a good reason for not stopping. But then, verse 33, Jesus says, A Samaritan, one of them, the hated, non-neighbor, neighbor neighbor of the Jews, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So Jesus pictures the Samaritan, this impure, half-breed, heretic, according to the Jews, as the obedient servant of God in the story. So in other words, what the representatives of Israel failed to do, this Samaritan reflecting the love and compassion of God did. This is so explosive. And you know, there's lots of lessons here. We don't have time for any of them, but but I think one of the clear ones, maybe just one, one of the clear ones is that we got to be really careful not to overlook how God can and does use those who are not in our tribe. Those whose theology... Those whose politics, those whose parenting philosophy, whatever, in this tribe or that, those who are not in our tribe, how God uses those who are not in our tribe. And there's sort of the verse 34, it says, He, the Samaritan, went to him, the man, and at great risk and cost to himself, he bound up his wounds. He poured on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to the inn, took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave it to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I'll repay whenever I come back. And then Jesus asked the lawyer, verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. Isn't it interesting that the lawyer connects the love and compassion the Samaritan shows with mercy. He did that himself. And Jesus, affirming the lawyer's answer, said to him, you go and do likewise. And with that statement, Jesus drops the mic. If there's ever a drop the mic moment in Jesus' ministry, it's right here. Jesus drops the mic. The challenge, the debate, it is over. And it's over with not only him failing to trap Jesus. I love this. Somehow Jesus trapped him in his own trap. That's what's just happened in this interaction because Jesus got the lawyer to admit in front of the crowd that his question, indeed his entire view of who a neighbor was, of how how far God ex- ex- you know expects his love, the love of his people to reach out, that it was deformed, that it was wrong. The man admitted that the Samaritan got it right. And notice, Jesus doesn't even really answer his question, who is my neighbor? (laughs) At least not directly. But his answer is clear. Everyone is your neighbor. Every human being... And especially those human beings that are most vulnerable and most oppressed are your neighbor, whether they are like you or not. And it doesn't matter what tribe the man on the side of the road is a part of. He's your neighbor. And what's more, not only is the status whether, of whether someone's your neighbor not determined by their tribe, what Jesus said here also teaches that the status and honor in God's kingdom that we receive does not come from our tribal identity either but from our compassion and love for neighbor. In other words, the true Israel, God's true people, are not those who have the religious or the ancestral or the ethnic credentials. It's those who love God by loving and doing justice to their neighbors. Not least because that's exactly what God is doing in Jesus. He, that's why Jesus has set His face to go to Jerusalem. Because in Jesus, God is extending His love and justice, His merciful salvation to all tribes, to all tongues, to all nations and peoples of the earth. And so the real question, Jesus says, it isn't who's my neighbor. The real question is, are you a neighbor? That's basically what He says here. Are you neighboring? And this family is what is at the heart of this familiar parable. The exhortation from our Lord to be neighbors who love our neighbors, especially our most vulnerable neighbors and oppressed neighbors. And um, I've just prayed for our own church, certainly for your church, in preparation for today, that our familiarity with this parable would never numb us to the call to do it, to do good to love our neighbors that's at the heart of it. That we'd never be stunted because of our familiarity with this parable from actually doing it. So let's, let's think about that now. From living for, Let's think about living out the parable. That's the heart of the parable, the, or the familiarity of the parable, the heart of the parable. Let's look at living out the parable. And, uh, and this is why in part, large part, you're doing this sermon series on justice so that you can learn to live out this parable as a congregation together. That's after all why Jesus told the parable. Not just so we get some good theology. He said, you go do it. You go do likewise. And so what I thought we could do just again for the rest of our time is just communicate just a little case study right alongside your church. Uh, about how our congregation is striving to live this parable out, both in personal ways as members of our church, but then also collectively together as a congregation. And I think that's a healthy place to start. You know, one of the ways that we ended our sermon series on justice was by seeking to just establish and clarify some Uh, theological, but then also a number of practical categories for doing justice. To put some of these categories on top of the theological foundation that we tried to lay, that Pastor T has laid through the first five sermons of this series. And perhaps I think maybe the most fundamental categories, practically speaking, we tried to establish for doing justice was the the, the distinction between doing justice personally as individual disciples and members of our church, and doing justice collectively, together as an entire local church. So doing justice personally, what does it look like to live out this parable personally? And what does it look like to live out this parable collectively, together as an entire church? And, uh, and we need to think about this together. And so, uh, you know, much of what Pastor T preached two weeks ago in the sermon on Titus is about doing justice personally. And and what we've said about this category is that most of our love as a church, most of the good works of justice that will express our love for our neighbors as a church will be worked out by our church on a personal level in our personal lanes, as Pastor T talked about. You remember him talking about that? So in other words, as we're seeking to follow Jesus by denying ourselves and picking up our cross and following Him in the way of sacrificial love, what we've said is that we're going to be led by the Spirit of God into neighboring in a thousand different ways personally starting in our homes with our roommates and our spouses and our children and then among our church and then spilling out into our neighborhoods and workplaces and classrooms and our teams and among our other social groups to the ends of the earth, that this is the primary way our love for our neighbors of our doing justice on behalf of the vulnerable will happen in our churches is on this personal level. And, uh, and as Pastor T's mentioned numerous times in this sermon series, we need to allow—and not just allow, but actually nurture—our consciences personally to be burdened and inclined in different directions here. And I think the imagery that the Apostle Paul used for the diverse gifts of grace in First Corinthians chapters eleven, really twelve to fourteen, there—I uh, I think that that's instructive and applicable here. That we're one body. And yet we have many members, which means that we'll be provoked to act and to do justice in a variety of ways as the Spirit leads us and gives us. Praise God. And we should praise God for that. Part of what's so beautiful about learning to do justice is how the diversity of good works and good burdens God has prepared for us to walk in will be walked in. And we should praise God for that diversity. Every bit as much as we praise God for the diversity of spiritual gifts that He gives to His church. And we always need to be on guard both in our hearts and in the words that come out of our hearts and through our mouths that we don't judge each other's justness or righteousness or spiritual maturity by whether or not we share the exact same burdens and callings for doing justice in our lives personally. God will lead us And call us to do justice personally as Christian disciples in ways that He will not call our entire local church to do justice collectively. Let me say that again. God will call us and lead us personally as disciples to do justice as Christian disciples in ways that He will not call our entire local church to do justice collectively. And we need to be mature enough in the church to celebrate that. We've got to be mature enough to celebrate that. And again, most of the justice that is and will continue to be done by and through our churches will be done on this level, the personal level, And a mark of a healthy church. Maybe the 10th mark of a healthy church, for those of you that means anything to, is that zeal and expressions of justice, of doing good works to our neighbors, will be manifest through the lives of our members everywhere in the church. So that's the one category, living out the parable Personally. Doing justice together personally. And yet, although most of the doing justice in our church will work itself out personally, there are certain ways in our church and in our neighborhood where we will have the opportunity and in some cases the responsibility to collectively do justice. To love our neighbors and face the problems that our neighbors are dealing with together as a church. So 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 most of the verses of the Bible commanding and commending justice are to the church collectively. You understand that? Not least because the church was in a collectivistic culture and the culture that the Bible was written in, not an individualistic culture like our own. And we need to think about what this category of loving our neighbors and doing justice collectively as an entire congregation looks like very carefully. So let's think about this. The Bible is clear that we have responsibilities collectively to love and do justice and opportunities. And the Bible's most clear that we have a collective responsibility to love and do justice and care for the vulnerable within our own congregation. So in other words, as the church, before we start getting big-headed or big-mouthed about what we can and should be doing to uproot justice and promote flourishing in our city or around the world, we need to make sure we're doing it in our own household first. (laughs) It's not to say that it's either or, but if we're not doing it in our own household, aren't we disqualifying in some measure our voice outside of our household in these matters? And so for all the opportunity that exists for this church, our church, to do justice in our city or in our neighborhood, there is an actual responsibility biblically to do justice within the church. That is unique. And the New Testament clearly teaches this. You can just write some of these references down and go look at it later. You see the the, the example of this in Acts chapter four, verses thirty-two and thirty-five, and Acts chapter six, verses one through six. You think about James chapter two, verses fifteen and sixteen. That is written to the church about how the church is treating the church. You think about Galatians 6, verses 2 and 10, same thing. 1 John verses chapter 3, verses 17 and 19, or Matthew 25, verses 34 to 40. All of that is about the church caring for the church, about the people of God caring for the people of God. Or you think about, again, John 13, verses 34 and 35. They'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another within the church. How you're taking care of one another within the church. And so all of these passages, as well as many others, speak about a local church's clear, collective responsibility to love and do justice among its own church family. And listen, the large majority of verses in the Old Testament about justice, including like Micah chapter 6, verse 8, they're also speaking to doing justice within the household of God. Now, in the Old Testament... God's people were a theocratic nation state in covenant with God which we have nothing like today. This is not the United States of America. I'm not going to give you a history government lesson in D.C., but uh, you know that. That that the United States is not a theocratic nation state in unique covenant with God. And that's what, in part, makes applying texts about doing justice from the Old Testament in the church today so very fuzzy, at least on the ground. It's not that we can't or shouldn't try to apply principles from the Old Testament social legislation in the life of the church. It's just that we need to take great care in doing so and be extremely humble humble, humble enough to admit that such applications always going to be open to debate between well-meaning, humble Christians, because sincere godly people, they're going to disagree about the most faithful way to apply these texts are. And again, we've got to allow for that. But what's crystal clear from the Old Testament and the New Testament is that when it comes to collectively doing justice, the local church has a responsibility to make sure justice is practiced among and for those in the household of God. Which is why our local church, like yours, has a care list. Which is why we're praying for the widows and the single parents in the congregation. It's why those who are financially and emotionally and relationally and spiritually vulnerable within the congregation are known by the elders, are known by the deacons, are known by one another. Because that's significant. That's where God tells us to start caring for those who are marginalized, those who are oppressed, those who are vulnerable. Is is within a household of God. It's also why we have a benevolence ministry at our church. Our benevolence ministry primarily goes to those in our own church that need help financially We give as much as we can after we've taken care of those within our church to the community but primarily it goes to those within our church because Personally and collectively this is a non-negotiable responsibility We have as local churches both to make our needs known to one another And maybe that's where you can most grow To do justice among the church, to love each other among the church, we have to know what each other's needs are. And maybe there's an opportunity for some of us to grow there, to be vulnerable, to make our needs known to one another so that we can take care of one another in this way and not just sort of come in here and act like we've got it all together when we don't. We've got tons of need every week. And if you ever just come into this room and you think about the collective need relationally, emotionally, financially, otherwise of a congregation... It can be overwhelming without a sense of the nearness of God. But we have a responsibility to let each other know what needs we have, but then also to meet those needs one to another. And here's the deal. Jesus and the lawyer both assume this in their little back and forth, don't they? That's not what they're debating in Luke chapter 10. What they're debating is what God expects of his people in regards to loving those outside of the family. And the lawyer is seeking justification for why he and the rest of God's people that he's pretending to lead don't have to love those who are not a part of them or even see those that are not a part of them as legitimate neighbors. And that friends, that family is what Jesus corrects here. And what he makes clear is that the churches that make the most, though they have responsibility to one another, they're to make the most of the opportunities they have to collectively extend God's love and reflect His holiness to those outside of the family. So so collectively we have a responsibility to one another in the church, but we have all these opportunities that Jesus is saying we should steward to the best of our ability to love those who are neighbors that are not part of the congregation. And in fact, one of the most striking and inspiring aspects of the early church's witness is how the early church's love and practice of doing justice for their neighbors, even their enemy neighbors who hated them, prophetically reflected God's love and gospel to those neighbors. And in fact, the Roman emperor Julian around 360 AD, he said this, he was lamenting, and he said, the impious Galileans, speaking of the Christians, they support not only their own poor, but ours as well. And everyone can see that our poor lack aid from us. That's what he, that, was his, that was what he said about the church. That was his testimony as the Roman emperor about the church. That They're not just supporting their own poor, but ours as well. And we're not even doing that. And you know, Rodney Stark, who's a historian and sociologist at Baylor, he found that one of the primary reasons that history suggests the gospel spread so quickly through the Roman Empire, right alongside the preaching, was because of the church's sacrificial love and eagerness out of their great hope to do justice for their neighbors. That in other words, the church's collective practice of love and justice made visible and validated the gospel that they were preaching. They were just preaching the gospel. They were living it out, as Jesus said here, to the lawyer together collectively outside of their own congregation. And the world saw. And I'll just tell you, you know, I've been at our church for 11 years now as one of the pastors. And... The most compelling aspect of our church's witness to our non-Christian neighbors, we live in a university neighborhood, two major universities, the most compelling aspect of our church's witness, both in my life personally and our life collectively as a church, is the ways that we've sought to do justice and love our neighbors. I'm not saying it's the most important aspect of our witness, but it is the most compelling, at least initially, to our neighbors. Whether it's been our meager efforts to give the middle school right down the street which is a magnet school, just a facelift here and there, paint and you know some of our artists to do uh, murals and different things, or whether it's our you know Thanksgiving banquet we host once a year in that middle school for the homeless in our community, or whether it's just our slow, messy pursuit as a multi-ethnic church at racial harmony together, slowly but surely listening and learning to listen to one another and love each other. On and on we could go. These are the things our efforts to care for the widow and orphan, that our immediate neighbors have both been surprised by and compelled by. And uh, and as we're sharing the gospel with them verbally, it's actually validated and undergirded the very gospel of the kingdom of God that we're proclaiming because we're demonstrating that gospel as well. And so where we ended our sermon series, and this is we're shutting down here, is as a congregation asking, okay. Personally, the primary way we're going to do justice is personally in our lives. Staying in our lanes, giving ourselves to our lanes. Collectively, though, we have a responsibility to one another. But then also collectively, we have all these opportunities. And certainly here in your neighborhood, you do as well. And so what we asked at the end of the sermon series on justice was who are the vulnerable neighbors laying on the side of the road in our city, in our neighborhood, that we have an opportunity to love? And in a systematic way, Right. It's like Jesus is telling the, the story of going by the Jericho Road and there's one time there was a neighbor. But what if you get, went by that road every day and every day there was a new neighbor? <laughs> there was a systematic or systemic problem of neighbors laying on the side of the road. Right on the Jericho Road. What would you do? And so, so we were really clear though and this is the framework we use, you know, as a church, that, that collectively our, ch- our church can't and should not try to do and be a part of loving every single neighbor and engaging in every single need in our city. I don't think that's the part of the point of the parable. I don't even think we could actually do that if we wanted to. But what we did ask was, what can we do collectively as a congregation? What opportunities do exist to love our neighbors? It's like with World Missions. You know, we've said as a church, listen, there's 7,000 unreached people groups. We can't be a part of reaching all of these unreached people groups, but we can choose one. We can choose Japan. Japan. And we can collectively, even if personally we support different things, we can support collectively one unreached people group, Japan, and we're doing that. And it's the same thing in this pursuit of justice. And so what I did was at the conclusion of our sermon series on justice. On behalf of our elders, I just began gathering a small group of members of our church who are extremely knowledgeable about just the various issues that our most vulnerable neighbors in Denton are, uh, are, are facing. And, uh, and this group included... Uh, a head of a non-profit in our city, in our county, a county judge, uh, a police officer, detective college professors staff and lead volunteers at these different governmental agencies and nonprofit agencies in our city and we just started meeting using some of these categories that we established in our sermon series to ask where is our church best equipped and inclined to collectively love to collectively serve and seek justice for some of the problems our most vulnerable neighbors are facing that's just what we did we and so we met we're still meeting it's not over you know, we started this end of this sermon series in November and we're still meeting. And, uh, and as this group began meeting, you know, what was surprising was how quickly, especially amidst such a diverse group, a clear answer to such a massive and potentially complex question began to emerge from us in the room. And the answer that emerged for us was single mothers and their children in our neighborhood and in our city. That, that if you look at the stats, and I, I know it, it transcends just our context, but, but you know, uh, 50% of our neighbors in the city of Denton that are suffering in poverty are single parents and their children, and most of those parents are single mothers. And so families with female head of household in our city, you know, children less than 18 years of age in the home, they have the highest poverty rates in our city, at least twice that of all other family types. And so that was just obvious. It was just, you know, there for us. And and then and, and so what we said was these women and their children, these neighbors, are some of our most vulnerable neighbors. And, you know, single motherhood and the vulnerability that often accompanies it, not all the time, but so often accompanies it, is deeply connected to the problems of racial injustice and abortion as well, which our church has been uh, thinking about, um, seeking to do justice in regards to for 11 years now. And so in other words, in seeking to love and care for these vulnerable women and their children, doing that in our city at the intersection in so many ways of seeking to help those affected by the personal and systemic impacts of racial injustice and of seeking justice for the most vulnerable human beings on the planet which are preborn children. And everyone from the United Way to CPS to the police department shared with us that this group, the single mothers and their children, are a group incredibly underserved in our neighborhood and city. And they're a group that we might be uniquely as a church equipped to serve with the collective spiritual and emotional and other resources that we have as a congregation. And so since November, our group has been meeting to think about how can we do this? And we've been meeting with a number of different organizations that are doing this and comprehensively seeking to love and care for single mothers in our city. Slowly but surely, that work of taking three, taking five, and taking them two to three to four years through a process of just comprehensively shepherding them toward shalom, toward flourishing. And so we're just thinking through, which one can we be a part of? How can we be a part of stepping into this space? And so, if nothing else... My hope was just that this case study would help you and encourage you because you, in large part, have helped shape this burden that our church is growing into. So I just want to, on behalf of our congregation, say thank you. Thank you for serving us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for modeling for us what it looks like to love our neighbors, to seek to do justice to our neighbors, not just within our congregation, but outside of our congregation, in our neighborhood. And so I want to encourage you, do not grow weary in this conversation. Do not grow weary in your pursuit together as a congregation through the thorniness of some of these conversations toward the hope of what you've had before you in this sermon series. God will make all things new. And He is using you until that day as you proclaim the gospel with your mouths. He's using your lives to demonstrate that gospel here in this neighborhood. So keep sowing to the Spirit, knowing that the harvest of God's kingdom, it's going to come. It will come. It may seem like right now, it's among thorny ground and rocky ground. Jesus said, listen, that harvest is going to be a hundredfold. That's going to be a breathtaking harvest. And Lewis Smeads, who's a theologian, and I'll end with this, he once wrote and said that until the day that Jesus returns to make all things new. Am I supposed to catch that? I'm sorry, I missed that. <laughs> Duck it up here. Lewis Smead said that he said the hardest task for the church, those who are believers in Jesus together, is living the sort of life together that makes people look and say, "Uh aha, so that is what people are going to live like when righteousness takes over the world. And beloved, that's what you're doing. That's what you're seeking not just to do, but actually to be. And that only happens as we keep our hope set on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, which I think is the best place to just land this morning, especially in light of this parable. Because what compels and creates a love for our neighbors, like that of the Good Samaritan, is remembering that first and foremost, we are not the Good Samaritan in this story, in this parable. We're the neighbor in the story lying half dead on the side of the road. And in fact, the Bible told us, tells us, we were actually not just half dead we were completely dead in our trespasses in our sins and that jesus not just happening to be passing by the way but actually looking and seeing our plight from heaven from another realm came to earth to rescue us in in great love at great cost to himself he laid down his life on the cross in our place for our sins to make us alive, to save us from the power of sin and the power of death and ultimately God's wrath that's on the other side of sin and death. And so if you're not a Christian and you're here with us this morning, this is what we'd want you to know most about today, about this church, about what we believe, about God, is that this is the God we serve. And this is why we have hope as a congregation to love our neighbors and pursue justice because this God has loved us in this way through His Son. He has sent His Son to die for you, just like He has died for us, so that you could be made right with Him, even this morning. And so if you want to know more about that, we'd love to talk with you about that before you go this morning. We'd love to talk with you about that over some muffins or whatever else is out there in the foyer. But let me pray. Thanks again for letting me be with you this morning. We love you, and we thank God for your ministry to us and to this neighborhood. And beyond this neighborhood to the ends of the earth. And so, Father, we thank you so much for this congregation. And I pray, uh, Lord, as we often pray for our brothers and sisters here, that you would bind them together in unity. And by your Spirit, you would lead them to embody the very love that they have received through Jesus Christ and by your Spirit. So would you continue to make them salt, make them light here as they set their hope on you, O Lord, and your son, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and now is seated at the right hand of God. And until he returns to make all things new, would you help us to live as your people, to be neighbors who love our neighbors for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Amen.